read Romans chapter 6, verses 18 and 19, which you will notice, as uh, I indicated a little earlier, uh, very closely mirror what we have in um, Romans chapter 6, verses 11 through 14, based on who we are, how we use our bodies. That's the logic. Hear God's word then. Romans chapter 6 verse 18. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. And let us pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word. As always, we find in it a lamp Uh, to our feet and a light to our path, uh, a guide unto holiness, which is the explicit purpose of this text, that we might present ourselves unto righteousness, leading to holiness. And dear God, we ask you that through the preaching, this this cause might be furthered in our lives as you assist our faith through, uh, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, as you remember, we've begun now a new section in Romans where Paul is answering... A second question, the question uh, in verse one is, shall we sin that grace may abound? May it never be or certainly not. Uh, Now the question is, based on what he said in verse 14, that we're no longer under law, but under grace. Shall we sin because we're no longer under law, but under grace? The same answer, certainly not. We began to look at that last time. The way that he answers that question, aside from his categorical uh, response, certainly not is by stating a principle in verse 16. He says, you are uh, the one to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey. You are that one slave whom you obey. You are the slave of the one you serve. You are the slave of the one you obey. That's the principle that he states in verse 16, which controls the thought to the end of chapter 6. And so you can look at this in two ways because there's two masters. There's sin and then there's God, who's sometimes spoken of as righteousness. The unbeliever, on the one side, in living a life of sin, whether he realizes it or not, is a slave to sin. That's the most tragic aspect of the life of the unbeliever. It isn't just that his life is full of sin, Paul says. It is that he is a slave to it. And that is obvious from the standpoint of the principle itself that you are That one slave whom you obey, the man who obeys sin is a slave to sin, just as the man who obeys God from the heart is God's servant. And so the difference between these two men, and sometimes we're speaking of the same man, the old man and the new man before he was a Christian, is seen not just in how he lives, but also who is his master. That's the controlling thought of verses 15 through 23. Who is your master? Well, your master is the one whom you obey. So you really answer the question by looking at your life. But the Christian obeys God in contrast to the unbeliever who obeys the dictates of sin, which he finds in his flesh. Paul spells this out in verse 17 when he says, but God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. You see, he says, it's a matter of praise and thanksgiving. Formerly, you were a slave to sin, but now 
God has set you free by his grace. And so one way to define grace is like this. Grace is God's power to break sin's dominion. That's the primary thought in view here. The way grace sets us free. And that's what a Christian is. Verse 17. You were a slave to sin, but thank God you've obeyed God from the heart. Here is someone who has been changed by the grace of God. Once he was a slave of sin. Now he's the servant of God. Which leads Paul to say now in the new section, the new verses, verse 18, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. There he's spelling out what was implied in verses 16 and 17. He's restating, but he's also adding. You see, he's still concerned to stress the leading assertion, namely, you are uh, the servant of the one you obey. And so he begins by telling us that we've been set free from The former master. That's the first thing. And having been set free from sin. Do you remember what it's like to be under sin's dominion? Sin is a terrible master. Bondage to sin is the worst kind of slavery. Again, think of your former life. Look at the man in sin today. Isn't it obvious? Is there anything worse than being in the grip of sin? Here again, we remember what our Lord says in John chapter 8. Whoever sins is a slave to sin. That is the position of the unbeliever. The man whom God has not redeemed. Sin is not just a part of his life. It's his whole life. And it's ruining everything about him. It's controlling him. Do you ever notice how unhappy the unbeliever is? He tries to pretend all is well, but he's miserable. I say again, sin is a terrible master. It pretends to offer us happiness, but it just makes us miserable. I don't mean to say that there isn't a kind of immediate passing pleasure or happiness in sin, but it doesn't last. You can see it on the face of the sinner. He isn't happy. He's miserable. He may be smiling at first, but his smile goes away. He's a slave and he knows it. He lives his whole life in sin. But what's even worse than that is that there's nothing of God in his life. A life devoid of God, hardly thinking of him at all. Sin, this terrible master, does all it possibly can to divert our thoughts from him all the time. And where can there be any joy apart from his presence? Oh, but God be thanked, Paul says, you were in this position, but no more. Under this terrible master, from the moment you believed, you've been set free from the tyranny and the domination of sin. Isn't it wonderful? Jesus himself goes on to say, not only that whoever sins is the slave to sin, but if the son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. This is one of the most glorious uh, glorious truths of the gospel. It is the freedom by which Christ or for which Christ has set us free. Whom the Son makes free is free indeed. This wonderful freedom. The freedom and the joy of the sons of God. Which Paul speaks of often in his epistles. Paul will go on to say in chapter 8 verses 14 and 15. For as many as are led by the sons of God. These are the sons of God. Excuse me. These who are, are led by the Spirit of God. These are the sons of God. For you did not receive. Listen. You did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. That's what it was like before, but not anymore. 
You did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The wonderful joy and freedom of the sons of God. You see, the bondage is gone. Do you realize that? The bondage of sin. If you can take anything away from Romans chapter 6, take that away as a practical matter in your life. And that's why it's so tragic and so unthinkable that we should ever think that sin can still master us. It can't. Tell me if I'm describing you. There you are sitting at the computer alone. You say, I have no power. I must give in. You know what I'm talking about. You say to yourself, sin has mastered me once more. I'm powerless against it. Have I described you in this last week? Well, here's the truth you've got to grasp, Paul says. That there's no bondage anymore for the sons of God. Satan may come to you and try to tell you, you're powerless. You're no match. But he's lying to you. Sin cannot claim you like it once did if you belong to Jesus Christ. You can turn from it any time. Which is why Paul says, or excuse me, James says, that the moment you resist the devil, he flees from you. It's because he's afraid of you. Did you ever realize that the power of faith overcomes even the devil himself? But the problem, as Paul says, is that we don't realize what is true of ourselves. We listen to the devil. We believe the lie. Sin is not your master. That's what you've got to hold on to. It's the most practical truth there is. And beyond me standing here telling you that and you there to remind yourself of that, Paul says that God gave us the Holy Spirit to testify to our hearts always that we're no longer in bondage, but that we are enjoying the freedom and the life and the joy of the sons of God. How tragic, I say again, that the Christian would ever think that sin was his master. But at the same time, on the other side of it, Paul says, don't go too far with this. Take all of verse 18 together and what do you see? He says, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. We have to take the whole idea as one. The other side of slavery to sin is slavery to righteousness. That's the other thing you need to remind yourself in the moments where you're tempted to sin and you think you're powerless against it. I'm a slave of righteousness. I don't belong to myself, you say. Now, anyone who knows anything of the second kind of slavery would be quick to say, and I've been saying it already. It's my testimony, and I hope it's your testimony of of God's grace in my life. Here is true freedom. I'm a slave of God, and yet I'm free. This is freedom. Indeed, the truest kind of freedom there is. You remember what Paul says in Galatians chapter five, verse one. He says, don't you ever let go of it. Don't you let anyone ever rob you of the freedom which Christ has given you. Galatians chapter five, verse one, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Isn't it wonderful? And yet don't go too far with it all. Paul is still concerned to stress the primary point of verse 16, which is once again, you are the slave of the one you obey. And so we need to realize that to be set free from sin is not freedom in an absolute sense. It doesn't mean, and this is how uh, we all tend to misunderstand grace. I was talking about this in Sunday school. It doesn't mean, grace does not mean there are suddenly no constraints upon the Christian. 
You remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 21. He says, I'm no longer under the law, and yet, as though to say I'm no longer a Jew, and yet I'm not without law, but under uh, law to Christ. The Christian is not a man without law. He's no longer under the law, but he's not without law. You see, Paul is saying, I'm aware of this freedom which Christ has given me. I'm no longer under the law. And yet he's quick to add the other side of it. Not without law, but under law to Christ. As though to say what I am saying, namely, that the Christian is not someone for whom there is suddenly no restraint. That is not what it means to no longer be under law. As though for the Christian now who is under grace, there is nothing to check him or rein him in in his sinful passions and desires. The freedom he enjoys is freedom from the dominion and tyranny of sin. That is true freedom. And that's the freedom we want. That's the freedom Christ gives us. That awful bondage we know all about and that I was describing earlier under the terrible master called sin. Thank God we've been set free from that. But the other side of that, having been set free, is slavery of another kind. Slavery to God. He is now your master. And your aim always is to please him and to serve him. He is the one now who rules your life. Not sin, but God and his righteousness. The other side of slavery to sin is slavery to God. Or look at it like this. How did you ever get free in the first place? You were in this terrible bondage with no hope of ever breaking free. The shackles of sin were upon your wrists, making you miserable, even as they pretended to make you happy. Well, tell me, Paul says, and I say, you whom uh, you who have obeyed God from the heart and thank God for it. Was it you who did it? Did you break the bondage? Did you set yourself free? Obviously not. Any man who suggests That I became free by my own power does not understand the power of God, nor the power of sin. The man who is a slave to sin is powerless to break free, which is the most terrible and desperate aspect of his condition. He's dead in trespasses and sin, Paul says. There's nothing he can do about it. He can't break free. But it is precisely to such a man under sin's terrible dominion that Paul says... The leading assertion of Romans. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. To the man who is shackled by sin. To the man who is powerless to break free. He says God can make you free. He's powerful to do it and he will do it. My testimony is he's done it for me and he can do it for you. If only you believe the gospel. The way a man breaks free is by the power of God. He's able to save you from sin itself, from sin's tyranny. And this is not only Paul's testimony nor my testimony, but it's the testimony of all whom God has saved. Do you remember what Newton said in his famous hymn? I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Newton isn't saying I did this. He's saying God did this for me. It wasn't I who did it. It was God. He saved me, though I was utterly lost. Though I was blind, he he enabled me to see. He broke these awful chains. He redeemed me and made me his own. He enlisted me in his service and now I delight to serve him, obeying him from the heart. Verse 17. He bought me with a price. 
even by the precious and costly blood of his own son. And so I now obey him with my body and all that I am. I'm not my own. I'm his. I'm his slave. I do not hesitate even to go that far. He redeemed me. I am his. I belong to him. Slaves to Christ. Do you remember the first line of Romans? Romans chapter 1 verse 1. Paul. Well, let me read it to make sure I've got it just right. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. The first words of the epistle. I would be known as Paul, the slave of Christ. That's what he's saying. And suddenly we understand why, based on what he's saying here in Romans chapter 6. Before he says anything else, he says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. In other words, I'm one who's been set free from the slavery of sin by the power of God. And thus I become a slave of Jesus Christ. And I would ask you whether the concept of slavery is offensive to you. Is it unsettling to you and upsetting to you for me to describe my position to Jesus Christ and your position to Jesus Christ in terms of the concept of slavery? Does it disturb you? Or are you willing to go even this far along with Paul and say, I belong to him. I am the slave of Jesus Christ. He is my master. He bought me. And redeem me from sin unto himself. And now I belong to him. You see this is one of the things that is so offensive to the sinner. It's one of the reasons he rejects the gospel. It's because in his own pretended autonomy. He will not bend the knee. He will not yield to another. He rejects anything which detracts from his autonomy. But do you realize that on the other side of it, going back to what Paul says in verse 17, the Christian thanks God for it. He rejoices and praises God. He glories and delights in it. Oh, God has set me free and now I'm enjoying it. And in doing so, he's made me his own. This is the kind of thing not only that we thank God for, but that sets us singing as Christians. And certainly it becomes one of the most powerful motives to turn from sin and to live for God. He's bought me with a price. He's made me his own. You see, that's always the argument of Scripture. That's what it means to be redeemed. It's important to stress, let me be quick to add, that the negative connotations of slavery are gone. Let us call it true slavery, for it is. But the negative connotations disappear. On the side of sin, slavery is as evil and as awful as one can possibly imagine. The worst possible form of slavery. It compels men to the worst kinds of deeds. And in the end it kills them. It is a slavery unto misery. It is a slavery unto death. Which Paul says in verse 16. Every man who obeys this master will die. In every possible form. We'll look at that next time. But obedience to God, which means slavery to God, if you understand the principle, is something positive. It's something wonderful. It's something, as I said, that sets a man singing and thanking God. It leads to righteousness and life. It doesn't kill man, but it makes him happy. It fills his soul and his life with God himself. This kind of slavery is full of blessing. And yet, you see, it is still called slavery. And nothing less. 
with respect to sin and its dominion set free, we say. But with respect to God and his son, Jesus Christ, bond servants. Though I am not under law, I am not without law, but under law to Christ. 1 Corinthians 9.21 But we also ought to notice this word righteousness. I've been stressing that we are slaves to God, which is certainly the point here. But Paul actually uses the word righteousness. Having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. He puts it similarly in verse 16. To whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one slave from uh, whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. It's the same idea. You're either the slave of sin or the slave, uh, he actually says, of obedience leading to righteousness. But in either case, verse 16, verse 18, he, he actually says you are the slave, you've become the slave of righteousness. And he does so for many obvious reasons. One is simply that righteousness, like obedience in verse 16, is the obvious counterpart to sin. You have the man who's enslaved to sin on, on the one side, and you see the thing he's never doing is obeying God. But once he's been uh, saved, uh, the most obvious change in his life is that suddenly his life is full of obedience. I thank God you've obeyed God from the heart. The way to see the opposite of slavery to sin is to stress obedience and righteousness. That's what Paul does. Another reason is that righteousness is one of the words that is synonymous with the kingdom of God. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus often speaks of the kingdom and its righteousness. What the true sons of God is seek, are seeking is the righteousness of God. Or in another place, uh, Romans chapter 14, verse 17, Paul, in uh, summing up the concerns of the kingdom of God, says this. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And, and that's uh, a very helpful way. Uh, just to say that the one who's saved from the kingdom of darkness now belongs to the kingdom of God. He's in a different realm. He's under a different power. And the characteristic feature of that kingdom is righteousness. He's a slave to righteousness because he belongs to King Jesus. And then there's this obvious reason. And that is simply that righteousness is undoubtedly Paul's favorite word in Romans. It's his favorite way to describe God's grace and his salvation, the power of God to save. Romans chapter 1 verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to save those who believe. How so? For in it is revealed the righteousness of God unto faith. The righteousness of God on display in justifying man. But I want to be clear that Paul is not describing justification in chapter 6 verse 18. He's describing our slavery to God and what it consists of. It consists no more, he says, of a life of sin that isn't how the justified believer lives, that isn't how he thinks. But it is a life, he says, of obedience leading to righteousness. Which leads us to what he says in verse 19. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, for just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness, and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Live a righteous life, he says. Do so with your body. But there's two parts to the verse. 
And I'm very fascinated by what he says at the beginning of chapter, uh, chapter 19. It's a curious expression. I'm amused here because Paul uh, seems interested to defend his use of an illustration, as though to say, I know it isn't my common practice to throw in an illustration. Uh, normally, if you read his epistles, he's too caught up in the heavenly realities. I, w- I once heard it described as though he was in heaven itself, contemplating the glories of heaven, preaching to man. I think that's a good way to describe Paul's epistles. You don't often see him descending into uh, the simplicity of our outlook. His, his, his epistles are lofty and heavenly. And he says, well, here I'm, I, I, I beg your pardon almost. Let me, let me borrow something from common experience. Let me, use, let me use an illustration. But in doing so, I feel the need to defend my use of it. I was interested to see... And I'd be happy to share with any of you that Martin Lloyd-Jones preached an entire sermon on that phrase. Let me read that phrase to you again, by the way. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. That is, in terms of slavery, a human analogy, a human idea, a human experience in many cases. Martin Lloyd-Jones took that phrase and he gave uh, an analysis of illustrations and sermons, which he wasn't terribly fond of. Uh, and, and partly because of what Paul says here. It, it, anyone who would be interested to read it, I'd be happy to share it with them. I must defend my use of it, Paul says. I'm only describing something so lofty and sublime in such base human terms because I feel it might help you. Because of the infirmity of your flesh, because of the weakness of your understanding, because of your aptness to take the truth and to twist it to your own destruction. I fear you might misunderstand what this freedom is. That you might abuse it in just the way many were. That you might uh, seek to sin that grace might abound. And so he says, I make use of this illustration in order to help you. To make it easy for you to see what I mean. But at the same time, he seems to say, I'm almost sorry to do so. Because illustrations like this are meager means of conveying divine truths. Yes, you are slaves to Christ and to God, slaves of righteousness. But in one sense, the illustration still falls short because even then you may be tempted to think of it in this negative way to resent what it means to be a slave, to regard slavery as something negative. Oh, how can I make you see? Paul seems to be saying, how can I help you in your weak fleshly state to see how grand and glorious it is to be set free from sin in the service of God? Slavery as a metaphor, will have to do. It's not a perfect illustration, but on account of our weakness and our proneness to misunderstand and abuse this freedom, it will have to do. And so he goes on to say what he does at the end of the verse. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Here again, we find the exhortation very similar to what we found in verses 12 and 13, which we read earlier. Paul says, reckon what is true of you. You're dead to sin, alive to God in Christ. That's verse 11. So verse 18 functions in the same way. Having been set free from sin, you are slaves to God. In light of the truth, use your bodies in the service of God. Verses 12 and 13 verses or verse 19. Stop using your bodies in the service of sin. Start using your bodies in the service 
of God. Glorify God in your bodies. Obey God with all that you are. Having been set free from sin, you've become slaves to righteousness. Therefore, present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. That's the teaching. You notice once again, he puts it negatively, then positively. The effect of putting it this way is to say, again, you you see, he says, just as you presented your members of sin, or excuse me, slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, this is what you used to do. That's the negative. So now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Just as eager as you were, he's saying, to sin under its dominion. And certainly we can see how the sinner is very eager to sin. That's what Paul's describing here. This determination to sin. He lives for it. He's always sinning and sinning more and more and more. He's energized in its pursuits. There's an intensity and a dedication to sin in the way he lives, as Murray says, John Murray. He thinks about it all the time. He schemes in his heart to have what it desires. He puts a great amount of effort in this regard. Which shows how much sin has gripped him and dominated him. He's always presenting his members, which means his body in the service of sin, leading ever and always to more sin. So that uh, in the way Paul is describing the sinner here, he's not only always sinning, but he's getting worse all the time. Notice the progression. Uh, Just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, this downward spiral, even into hell itself. And yet this eager pursuit, in just the same way, Paul says, now that you've been set free from that vain pursuit and that kind of living, and now that God has enlisted you in his service, live for him in just the same way. Put the same kind of effort and energy in the service of God that you once put into the service of sin. Don't be lazy. In other words, give your all. Don't you see that God has redeemed you at great cost to himself? And that you ought to live with, uh, live for him with great zeal and enthusiasm. In other words, uh, if you understand the comparison and the error that Paul is correcting, one of the unfortunate errors that we are prone to as a result of misunderstanding the grace of God is that we, be, we become or, or we, we tend to become lazy in spiritual pursuits once we've become Christians. We were eager sinners, but we're lazy saints. That's the idea. We don't want to be guilty of works righteousness, after all. We don't want anyone to think that we're seeking to earn our salvation by our works. And so we become lazy. Is that not a good description of the church today? Lazy Christians. There is so little pursuit of holiness. Have you ever heard the expression that used to be common, take time to be holy? Well, people take so little time and so little pains to be holy anymore. And what does it mean to be holy? It means, well, I have a whole sermon on that this evening, by the way. But to be holy in a practical sense means yielding all that we have and all that we are unto God, even our bodies. I belong to him. I've been separated in his service. Oh, but Paul says, and it really is a stinging indictment of this kind of Christian. You weren't so lazy and careless before you were a Christian. You were a great sinner. 
You love to sin and put great effort into it. You got up early and went to bed late, if only so that you might sin more. Oh, but now that you're a Christian, how is it that you've now become so lazy and careless? Was it because you thought freedom from sin was a life of ease? A life in which nothing was expected of you? How is it that you do not now live with the same enthusiasm and the same intensity and eagerness for God? Only more so as you once did for sin. You see, if you really understand grace, you'll not only see it's the exact opposite of sin, but something greater. Which means the man who is under grace will not only give the same energies to a life of holiness as he once did in the pursuit of sin, but more so. He won't become lazy. He will become enthused to a greater degree. How much more ought we now to do for God than we ever did for sin? That's the argument. It's not just the exact parallel. But once again, the much more comes in here. Seeing that God has set us free and made us his own, how much more ought we now to present our members as slaves of righteousness for holiness than we once presented them as slaves of uncleanness. How eager we were in the pursuit of sin, how much more eager ought we to be in the pursuit of holiness. And do you see, lastly, how practical and how concrete the demands of holiness are? Holiness means just this, Paul says. And we're going to sing it at the end of the service. It's a new hymn, but, but notice it when we sing. Holiness means how we use our bodies. How we use our, in the same way sin means how we use our bodies. Later, Paul will say this as he begins what is really the exhortation to the church. And you notice again the place of the body and the life of the Christian. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Stop sinning with your body, he's saying. Present your body in the service of God. In verse 14, he says this along the same lines. No, that's not right. My notes are wrong. What verse is it? Well, I don't know, but he says uh, it's verse 14 of chapter 13. He says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Later, he'll say in chapter uh, chapter eight that through the spirit, we mortify the deeds of the flesh. It's the same idea. Precisely what he says in chapter six, verses 12 and 13. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of, unri- of righteousness to God. So he says in verse 19, just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Let your body become, Paul is saying, The vessel for his praise always with your mouth, with your ears, with your eyes, with your hands, with your feet. And do so with unbounded enthusiasm. Just as you were a great sinner, so be a great lover and obeyer of God. Now that he has saved you, 
Dedicate and devote yourself to God with all that you are. For you are not your own, he says in another place. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, serve God with your bodies. Amen. And let us now come to the table. I read last time, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I want to do so again this time because I think it captures exactly what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 6. The question is, to whom do you belong? If you are a Christian, you belong to the Lord. Uh, I'll stop there and, and, and keep, uh, I'll finish what I was saying once I've read what Paul says. Uh, First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The, br- the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For, though, for we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything or what is offered to idols is anything. Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Well, Paul is again setting a dividing line. A line of demarcation. He is speaking of the church's holiness. Her holiness is seen in that she partakes of Christ. And equally on the negative side that she no longer partakes of the world. She does not, uh, she does not live uh, in the pursuit of sin like the world does. And, and so Paul says how incongruent, uh, incongruent would it be for you to partake of this table and then rush out of this place. Uh, back into the worldly uh, pursuit of sin. That's the idea. You've been marked out. You've been set apart. Your place is at the Lord's table. But that's something that should define not only your worship, but the whole of your life. How out of place it would be for the Christian. In fact, he says, impossible. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of, cup, cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. And then he warns the church as he does in 1 Corinthians 11. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Uh, do you really want to find out? Do you want to say, well, I'm under grace. So I'm going, to see, I'm going to see how much sin I can commit and get away with. Paul says, that's a dangerous game. I, I urge you not to play it. But rather, as you find the Lord by his grace redeeming you and claiming you for himself, which is what the Lord table in part represents along with the totality of all that we have and that we do in the church. As part of that, won't you see how much you belong to him and how much you should devote your entire life going from this place to him? You don't go from the table of the Lord to the table of demons. You can't do it. And so this is just the beginning. You partake of the Lord's table and you continue to serve God as you go out from this place. That 
is the thought we must bear in mind. We are consecrated vessels in his service. Uh, I'll say more on that this evening. Let's uh, let's pray to the Lord now. Our Father in heaven, we praise you and we thank you uh, that through the means of this, uh, this means of grace that we are further set apart. Although, in a sense, we're already set apart by the by your grace and by the mere fact that we have any interest in doing this. We don't find the world doing this. And once again, you set up these mean uh, beggarly. Uh, these contemptible things like preaching and like uh, wine and bread and say uh, in these things is the kingdom of God set before your eyes. Oh, God, we, we ask you that by faith, not by sight, but by faith, we might lay hold of the promises and be richly nourished in our faith. And even the one who currently lacks faith uh, through all that we've done and even now through the administration of the Lord's Supper would be conscious of his sin and turn unto the Lord. And we ask this in Jesus name. Amen.